Our text this morning is from Genesis 15, verses 1 through 18. You will find this passage on page 10 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Jacob, you may be seated. Allow me to pray for us before we look at this chapter from Genesis this morning. Father in heaven, I pray for my words this morning. I pray for our ears this morning. I pray that you would fill us with gratitude, with joy, with satisfaction, with comfort at the declaration of your gospel from this passage this morning. And I pray that you would enable that filling by the power of your Holy Spirit and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, we've all, I think, or many of us have had the experience where we've seen a movie or read a book, and once you've seen that movie or read that book, you just can't go back to it. It's, you, you, it blew your mind in some sense, but going back to it, it's never the same. Uh, it's never the same. Um, this passage of Scripture is a similar experience for me. Back in college, I heard, uh, you may have heard of him, Tim Keller, uh, preach a sermon on this passage, and it was one of those moments where it blew my mind. He talked about things I'd never heard of. He connected the Old Testament with the New Testament in a way I'd never seen. And so I found this week um, 
that that sermon had a lot of gravity in my life, and it was really hard to escape it this week. And so what I've decided to do, I'm just going to read his sermon to you this morning. Um, if it's more comfortable, we can play it, and I'll lip sync it, whatever is good. Um, but no, listen, it's, um, uh, there's really not much else to say than what he said, and so I certainly would encourage you to listen to his sermon and realize how much smarter he is than your pastor. Um, but allow me to read... Uh, a quote from his sermon to begin um, and kind of set the stage for what this passage is about. And so Tim Keller says this. Everybody okay? All right. This passage is the gospel. Salvation in the Christian faith is not a cooperative effort. It is not God helps those who help themselves. It is not a partnership. God comes through and says, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. That's what this passage is about. We'll get there by the end, I promise. Maybe we will, I don't know. Um, listen, but we talked about Genesis 12 last week, introduced Abram, this character Abram. Uh, God is narrowing his, his uh, covenant with those whom he, through whom he will save his people. Uh, between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, a lot has happened. To give you an idea, about 25 years have passed, 25 years of Abram's life. We might be tempted as we read these things, and they're just simply pages from one another that God is speaking with Abram on a regular basis. There is time, long amounts of time, between God speaking with Abram. Uh, uh, during this time, we have several famous stories that we will not be going over in this series, but they're good to know about. Abram meets with Pharaoh, and he lies about who his wife is. He says, oh, it's my sister, do whatever. Um, and he gets in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, he participates in a regional war. You learn about the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah through this. Um, he meets this character named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, is the king of Salem, which means king of peace. He becomes a very important character in the messianic prophecies. Jesus is said to have been a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So all these things happen between what we talked about last week and what we're talking about this week. Uh, but this week, uh, we come to a moment where, where you can see from verse 1 that time has passed, Abram has seen no movement in his perspective on these promises that God has made, and he is full of worry. He's full of worry, full of anxiety. We, we can see this because God himself sees the worry. See how he starts speaking with Abram. So verse one, he says this, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Why would God start with fear not? Because he knows Abram is afraid. He's afraid that these promises may not come true. And so Abram, after God says, fear not, I, I am your shield, I'm your protection, I will make these things come true, his worry burst forth. His anxiety comes to the forefront. Look at verses two and three. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram has questions, he's questions. God responds with reassurance and we get to see one of the most incredible moments in all of scripture, Abram's faith. And so let's take a look first at verses four and five. Look at God's reassurance and behold, 
the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And much like with Noah and the rainbow after the flood, much like the Lord's Supper here this morning, God gives a physical sign to Abram to represent the the assurance of this promise. So it says here in verse five, he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. God gives Abram a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. He's he's telling Abram, you have to wait. You have to trust. But what does he do? Much like a rainbow in the sky, every time this nomad who lives in the wilderness where there's no city lights to block out the stars, every time he sees the stars, what is the reminder? I am your shield. I will make this occur. You have to wait. And so what is God's answer, really? It's trust me, trust me. This is a foundational principle of of how God operates. God speaks the truth, and then he gives signs of the truth. And we're called as Christians to see those signs and believe his word. And so under the wonder of the stars, an event occurs that Uh, Paul and the author of Hebrews and and many other authors in the New Testament point back to as a foundational moment for our salvation. It says that in verse six, and he, Abram, believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Okay, not all those things are in there. Uh, He believed the Lord. Abram saw the stars, trusted God's word, did not know when this promise would be fulfilled, but he believed. And what did God do? God counted his belief as righteousness. What does that mean? It means that believing that in what God will do, he counts it as if Abram is doing good. You see that? Trusting in God, which is not really doing anything, trusting in what God says and what he will do counts as doing good. God repeats another promise in verse seven. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, and to you I will give this land. Now we'd expect, since verse 6 is this kind of watershed moment of faith, that Abram's going to be like, sure, got it, great. No, what happens? He has more questions. He has more questions, more insecurity. In verse 8, he says, right, about that. But he said, Lord, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Still questions, still doubt. I think in this moment we can see that Abram is a lot like us. He wants to believe. This is not outright rejection of God. He wants to believe. He wants to believe. But at times, because the future is uncertain, what happens? He doubts. He doesn't see how God could possibly do it. He's in his 90s. When are you going to do it, Lord? And I think because we can resonate with this feeling that Abram is feeling, we we can actually address a problem in our lives. We also worry that God won't deliver. God won't deliver. We worry about that. We all do in some way. Now, I think we have to take kind of a detour here. We have a lot of anxiety in our lives. We do. That's how 21st century people are. A lot of anxiety. But we have to be careful 
first of all, to divide our anxieties into the right category. I think oftentimes, what do we have anxiety about? We have anxiety over things we think God has promised us. (laughs) We think he's promised us health and wealth, a spouse, children. We think he's promised us uh, happiness. We think that. Now, these things are all things that we desire for our lives, but they are not promised. They're not guaranteed. And so we have to be careful first to kind of divide out the anxieties that are about surfacey, earthly things and not things that God has promised. But then we still have this other level of anxiety that truly are about things that God has promised us. What has God promised? He promises us, and we'll read this verse later, he promised, Jesus promises his disciples, I have overcome the world. Well, has he? We think that, has he? He promises, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Is he? Is he with us, really? We hear in the epistles, God began a good work in you, and he will finish that work. Well, will he? I, I, it doesn't seem like it. So much time has passed. And so like Abram, we can connect with him. He's asking these same questions. Well, how and what and, and when? In all of his interaction with God, Abram had to wait. Think about this. Everything God promised Abram was in front of him. And if you read this passage, you see that he's telling him, in fact, hey, listen, you aren't even going to see this. 400 years later, this is going to happen. Wait. Trust me. Wait for a son, even though you're very old. You have to wait for your people to take this land. We're going to hear in a few weeks about God telling him to go up onto a mountain and sacrifice his son. And what does he tell him? I'll take care of it. You just got to go do what I'm telling you to do. I'll take care of it. It's in the front of him. He has to trust things he has not yet seen. And so the faith of Abram had to be strong because everything he was waiting for, nothing yet had come to fulfillment. And yet again, what happens? God follows his MO. He gives Abram another physical sign of his faithfulness. And so we come to these really weird verses, okay? Um, We're not going to demonstrate any of this, no cutting up of animals or anything this morning. Um, Unless you really want it, we can find something. Um, God does something that is not natural to our modern sensibilities. We don't know what's happening, but let me explain. So let me read verses 9 through 11 first, and then I'll give you some input here. And so God said to Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, you got it, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram seemed to know, seems to know what to do with these things. He brought all these things, he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. So cutting the animal in half, he would lay them uh, situated correctly, but spaced apart. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What is happening? (laughs) What is happening? And I thank Tim Keller. This is one of those moments in his sermon that I thought, how does he even connect these things? But he points us to a verse in Jeremiah 34. And it says this, listen carefully to the similarities. And the men who transgressed my covenant did not keep the terms of the covenant. So we're talking about covenants. What's a covenant? It's an establishment of a relationship sealed by an oath. 
So here in Jeremiah, the, the prophet is speaking. People have transgressed an agreement with God. And what does he say? I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Big clue there. Big clue. So what are we talking about? Covenants in ancient times, this establishment of a relationship based on an oath. What, there's no courts to, to kind of uh, determine who was in the wrong. And so what did they do? They would cut animals in half and they would make parties walk through them. And what does that mean? If you violate the covenant, you'll end up like that animal. Okay, you see, pretty serious stuff. Glad we don't have to do that in law these days, right? Cutting up of animals, bloodshed, all those things. But they're sealing these relationships with an, a blood oath, a blood oath. If you don't live up, you'll end up like this. And so Abram, it's likely, is expecting God to have him walk through the animals, because he's the recipient of, of the higher powers covenant. So what does he try, what does he think God's gonna say? Believe or die, believe or die. That's what Abram is likely thinking, but something else occurs. Something else occurs. Look at verses 17 and 18. It's a great summary of what happens in 12 through 16. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Freeze for a moment. Put yourself in the context of the original audience. What are they following through the desert? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They know what this means. This is the image of God to them. What happens? A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Passed between the pieces. And on that day, who made a covenant? The Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Abram asked God, hey, I feel insecure. How shall I know? How am I gonna know that what you're saying is gonna come true? And God answers, this is how you shall know. His smoke and his fire passed between the halves. What does this mean? God is declaring that not only does he own and make the promise and fulfill the promise, but he also owns the failing and the consequences of this promise. Keller puts it this way, Abram, may I be cut off if I don't do my part? He's saying, I'm making a promise, believe me, I take the consequences if it doesn't happen, but also, Abram, may I be cut off if you don't do your part? If you fail, God is saying to Abram, I pay, I pay. So when this covenant, this relationship sealed by an oath is made, it's initiated and administered by God and it's broken by either party, God commits to shed his own blood to heal the breach. It's a complete and one-sided faithfulness to a two-sided agreement. And of course, what happens? What happens? As always, humanity fails. Abram fails. We fail. Israel fails. We fail in the past. We fail right now. We will fail again in the future. And what happens in response? God keeps the covenant that he fulfilled at the cost of his own blood. And this is where we Going back to our anxieties and, and Abram having to wait for all his promises, we have a massive advantage over Abram. 
We have a massive advantage. God fulfilled his promise to Abram fully in Jesus. And so what did Abram have to do? God said, look and trust. And he had to wait patiently in the future for something he did not know would happen. And he did. He trusted God's word. Even when he didn't see resolution, even when his trusting came and stops and starts, we'll see this throughout his life. But he always looked forward. We are told, look and trust. And what are we told to look at and trust? Something that God has already done. Something he's already done. We live after the fulfillment of the promise. We live after the cross. We live after the resurrection. God in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus has shown himself to be perfectly faithful, never failing. And so we live, church, after the fulfillment of the promise. And what is the fulfillment? In Jesus' own words, it is finished. That's the promise we live in. What's finished? By faith, we are already united with Christ. Past tense. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. Past tense, present tense, future tense. In our forgiveness, we are counted righteous. Present tense. In our righteousness, what are we, what are we, how are we preserved? By the Holy Spirit. We're given the Spirit of God in our hearts. That Spirit, what does it do? It secures our relationship, past tense, present tense, future tense, with God to and through eternity. Jesus is our promise and our fulfillment. Yes, we're waiting for glory, but Jesus has done it already. We're not waiting for God to act. We don't have to wait and believe that he will act. We're called to believe that he already has. Second Corinthians 1, listen to Paul's confidence in this idea. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Because he's already done it. And so when we doubt, church, when we doubt that God is who he says he is, when we doubt that he's going to do what he said he will do based on what Christ has already done, when we wonder how God is going to fulfill these promises of being with us and overcoming the world and, and saving us from the death of our sins, what do we do? We must look back at the cross. Back at the cross. Our faith is in something that's already taken place. Praise his name. And so the promise of the cross, what, is, what does it do? It actually undergirds everything in our lives. And if we live by the promise of the cross, we don't truly have to worry. The world can't judge us. The unjust can't harm us truly. Sin cannot kill us. Listen to how John, in both of his writings, in his gospel and in his epistles, talks about this concept. Uh, he says... I've said these, this is Jesus speaking, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a promise, past tense, do you hear it? And then John, in applying this truth in 1 John 5 says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in something past. 
Who is it, he asked, that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so church, because of the cross, because of the cross, because it's past tense, because we live after the fulfillment of the promise, we can live in this supernatural confidence and comfort in our deliverance from all evil. We can do that based on something that's already happened. If we look at back what God, look back at what God has already done, we look back at the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we can see God's complete and one-sided faithfulness for us. One-sided. We can know by our faith that we have overcome the world. We can give those daily anxieties to God because he has us. He's done it already. He's He's finished what he started. We are saved, Christian. I need this kind of promise. I need it because we, we, think, we think we live life in control. <laughs> we think we do. And what are we doing? We think we're in control and we're just holding all of our anxieties as if we can solve them. That's what we're doing. And so thinking we're in control is just a mess of a way to live our life. It's not. We're not in control. Thinking we're in control, worrying about those things is simply wallowing in things that we do not and cannot control. And so what is our best and only hope? Our best and only hope is to rely on the perfect promise keeper the perfect promise maker, the one who says, not only do I make the promise, I fulfill the promise, and if you fail, I'll cover your end too. Maybe you're listening this morning online or you're here this morning and this is the first time you've ever even thought about God. You've thought about the idea that someone has made promises and he keeps them and he actually helps us when we don't keep them. What's the promise for someone like you? The promise is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. If you've never heard of that, you don't understand what it means. I'd love nothing more. Our elders would love nothing more than to speak with you about that. If you came with a friend, ask them about that promise. God does not make promises and wait for us to fulfill them. He makes them, fulfills them, and calls us into them. Christian, what do we need? I believe that we need daily to renew our faith in the perfect promise keeper. And one way we're going to do that today as we prepare for the Lord's Supper is to look at a physical sign of a spiritual reality. That's how God does things. What's the physical sign? He's given us this bread and this cup, and it's as if it's the same as looking at the stars of the heavens for Abram. We look at the bread and the cup for reassurance. And what's great is this is not, the, it's not the same as Abram's promise where he's looking up and saying, in the future, trust that this will be the way it is. We look at the bread, we look at the cup, and know that it represents something that's already taken place to save us from our sin. It's a sign, a physical demonstration of what God has already done. It's a physical sign of a spiritual reality that God has humbled, humiliated, conquered all of our enemies. 
It's only a matter of time before he returns to take us with him. It's a reminder that God's word is true even unto death, his own death, our death. And so what do we do? How do we respond? Well, we eat if we confess that we have a need for this kind of comfort and a promise already fulfilled. If we profess that in God's goodness, he has indeed already done this thing for us. It's done. If we've been baptized, and what is baptism? It's a claiming of that promise. We're invited to eat of the confidence of grace, eat of the reassurance of the gospel. That's what the Lord's Supper is to us this morning. So let us be bolstered in our belief by remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. If you are not a Christian here this morning or you don't believe that these things could possibly be true or you're living your life in a way that says, no, I'd rather just have these other things that I rely on and not God, the scriptures make it clear. It doesn't make sense for you to come eat. You'd be making an oath that you don't mean. And so we would encourage you, like the scriptures do, to not participate this morning. I'm gonna give everyone a moment to navigate their, mar- hi- their hinds and their marts. Yeah, their minds and their hearts. That's also what words um, on this issue. And uh, I'll gather us back with a prayer of blessing before we distribute the Lord's Supper. Father, I speak the truth when I say that we, followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, have in our possession the blessing of a great assurance. That assurance is that our salvation in no way depends upon us. It depends fully on you. I pray, Lord, this morning that that assurance would be visited upon us. We as frail humans doubt it. We don't want to believe it. We want to think that we have some effort in this this game of salvation, but Lord, you make it clear. I, you say, I make the promise. I fulfill the promise. I hold the consequences of the promise and I fulfill even that for you so that we might have a sealed relationship, a covenant between us. This relationship, Lord, is created by you, it is repaired by you, it is sustained by you, and if Jesus were not our righteousness, if Jesus were not our redemption, we would just be lost. And so we praise you. I pray that it's genuine in our hearts that we praise you, that you love and keep us sinners in your grace. And I pray that this meal would be a blessing and a sign of a spiritual truth, your saving of our hearts and lives. I pray these things in the name of Jesus because in him is the yes to all of God's promises. Amen.